You know we're going to get into it this morning. We got some bard here. We got some kicker guard. We got it going on. You can also place best bets as to whether or not this water is going to stay put for the whole message, or am I going to knock it off? More likely, I'll knock it off than anything else. I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a, a teaching pastor here at Wilton Hills Church, and it's so good to be here with all of you. I'm glad that you made the choice to come out here and be part of this service. Uh, Priests and the physicists walk into a bar. It's a brilliant title. I, I'm not sure exactly who came up with it. It's our creative team. They're very creative. It's just, uh, it's just, it works. Now, they wanted me to try to come up with a joke that would finish it off. A, a physicist and a priest walk into a bar, and, and, and well, I couldn't think of anything really that funny. They had a big bang or something like that. But, so we turned it into a contest, an impromptu contest, starting this morning. Uh, and, and we're going to give a free book, uh, whatever book you want of mine uh, that I have uh, that on hand, uh, you can have. And it, uh, if you're chosen as the funniest line, now the competition stuff. I've already got two pretty good ones. So check this out. So a priest, and a, a, a priest and a physicist walk into a bar, so the Muslim behind him ducked. Okay, now this one you either get or you don't get. This one's super clever if you get it. Uh, and you'll either get it or you won't. Schrodinger said, a priest and a physicist walk into a bar or didn't. Okay, so you either know about Schrodinger's cat or you don't, and uh, that one might be too clever for its own good. Anyways, I'm stoked about the series. I, I'm, I'm uh, really excited because I happen to love talking about faith matters, theology matters, and all that, but I also love science. I'm not a scientist by any means, but I'm kind of an armchair scientist. I like to read it in a lot because there's so much funky, fascinating, incredible stuff that's going on in science these days. It's just exciting, and it's mysterious, and quantum particles and all that stuff. And I like to, like wonder about what are the theological implications of some of this. You know, if you take some of these theories that are out there now, given that, what does it say about the universe? What does it say about God? And actually, I had some friends did a little book on that uh, called The Cosmic Dance. Uh, and, and, we, and we look at, at uh, quantum physics and complexity theory and chaos theory and non-equilibrium thermodynamics and relativity theory and look at the implications of those for theology and things like that. It's a picture book, so it's all like, you know, very simple. We have a lot of illustrations and a lot of tongue-in-cheek humor and whatever. So that's out there if you want to dive into that and learn about quantum physics and its implications for theology. So I'm excited. I get to geek out uh, for a couple weeks here. Um, the thing is, is that I obviously believe that, that science and faith are complementary. There's, no, there's points of tension, but those points of tension are good because it means you have to dig deeper and find answers to them. But I, I think that in the end, they're complementary. Uh, there shouldn't be in tension at all, at least not in conflict at all. But I'm a minority in saying that, an increasing minority. Uh, there is this, this assumption out there that faith and science are just at war with one another. And that, that if, if you're, you know, science is about being rational and being logical and basing your, your conclusions on evidence, but faith is about being irrational and just taking this leap of faith and, and basing your conclusions on authority. And it, it's a stigma that's all over the place. Um, and it's driving people from, from the church and it's keeping people from taking Christianity seriously. So here's a, just a few little statistics from David Kinnaman's book, uh, You Lost Me, Why Young People Are Leaving the Church. 59% of Americans believe science often conflicts with religious faith. And 38% of them believe that it mostly conflicts uh, with re religious faith. The two just aren't compatible. And here's one indication or one explanation for why people have this perception. 97% of scientists believe that humans have evolved. 
I was actually surprised to find that there's 3% that don't believe that. I would have thought it would be closer to 99%. But certainly in biology and all those relevant fields, it, the overwhelming paradigm for science is an evolutionary paradigm. Only 24% of American evangelicals, however, believe humans have evolved. So three-quarters of American evangelicals reject one of the most fundamental uh, frameworks of contemporary science. And that's what gives that perception that um, we're, we're, we're anti-intellectual, anti-science. 59% of all young Christians will end up walking away from their faith. Right now, 6 out of 10 almost are, are leaving the faith. And the number three reason they give is the perceived conflict between science and faith, or just logical reasoning and faith. They have this assumption that if you're going to be a believer, you have to check your brain in at the door. And uh, oh, see, what's happening is that the, the respect towards science is actually increasing in the culture. And as the respect for science increases, the disrespect for any groups that reject science increases. It's like the assumption is you're too stupid to take science seriously. And so this is causing massive PR problems for the kingdom. And as, as ambassadors of the kingdom, as people here who want to be putting on display the truth of the kingdom, this should really concern us. That there's this obstacle put between people um, coming to faith based on science. And it's causing a lot of people to leave. I actually have some experience in this. Uh, I've shared this before, but I'll say it briefly here. But I became a Christian as a, just before my senior year in high school at the age of 17. Had a great encounter with God. In fact, that first year, I had a lot of great encounters with God. It was a church that put a premium on experiencing Jesus, but very little value on thinking about Jesus or anything. You, just, you experience it, and that proves that it's true. And it was a fundamentalist Pentecostal church, so we were taught that if Genesis 1 isn't completely literal, then the whole Bible might as well be a book of lies. So I... Enjoyed my first year of being a Christian. That goes fine. But then I entered the University of Minnesota. And the first class I took was a class, it was called Introduction to Evolutionary Biology. No, I took that class on purpose. I had to fulfill a science requirement. Um, and I had read three whole books defending creationism against evolution. I was an expert. And so my plan was to go into this class and I, I studied these books, and I had uh, three-by-five cards where I'd write out arguments that I just got from these books. And my plan was that whenever the professor would talk on something that had to do with one of my arguments, I would object. And I, being a complete arrogant idiot at the age of 18, thought that I would save this class from the lie of evolution, and maybe even convert some, and maybe even convert the professor. Who knows? <laughs> three whole books. I have a virtual PhD, man. It was uh, from Fish to Gish. Anyone ever read that book, Fish to Gish? It's real popular in the 70s. And then the other book was uh, Henry Morrison's Genesis Flood. And the third one was by this Whitcomb guy, I forget. Anyways, I went in there. I was loaded. I had my ammunition. Here comes Greg, the evolution slayer. <laughs> and so he would say something, and I would, yeah, well, what about, what about the second law of thermodynamics? Huh? But you never thought of that, did you? And this professor would just so effortlessly and graciously carve me up. He was like, oh, <laughs> it was so easy for him. Like, I clearly was not the first fundamentalist Christians he's ever dealt with. Because he had a response like that for everything I would bring up. Oh, well, that, see, that's overlooking the fact that 23 years ago they discovered blah, 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 blah. Or that's overlooking, that, that's true about closed systems, but not about open systems. And you know, your objection just doesn't work. It got to the point where other students were, were, were objecting because I was so obnoxious. And I was so obnoxious. We just tell him to shut up. 
But the professor would defend me, which I hated. I wanted to not like this guy, but he was so nice to me. And he would say, oh, no, it's good to question everything in science. Everything's fair game. So whatever questions you've got, it's good to, to, to raise them. So that went on for about four weeks. And then I ran out of arguments. And he had just diced up, just graciously just carved up and responded to every one of them. And by the end of that semester, I felt I had no choice but to reject the Christian faith. It wasn't that I wanted to. Um, you know, all my friends thought I backslid because I wanted to go back to my immorality. You know what? I liked being a Christian. It was so much better than being an atheist. Man, there's a purpose. You, get out of, you get, wake up in the morning, you got a reason for waking up. I, I love the idea that, that we're going to go on forever and that we got a mission to accomplish. And, and I, I just love that, having a purpose. And now to try to go back to my atheism, oh, it was miserable. I was so... That, those nine months after I gave up on my faith were the most miserable, depressing nine months of my life. Uh, now, fortunately, I was able to climb my way back in, slowly but surely, but how many people reject their faith for reasons like I had, um, thinking that if the Bible's not, if Genesis 1's not literally true, the whole Bible's a book of lie. How many people do that and they don't end up coming back? It's just tragic. And that's why I think this series is so, so very important. This assumption is so prevalent and it's actually getting worse. You would hope that we'd be making, gaining ground on t- and tearing down these stereotypes about faith being irrational. But actually, we're going in the other direction. If you're science, if you're for science, well, then you're against faith. You're against taking a leap. You base, you're, you're rational, you're logical, you're smart. You base your conclusions on evidence, whereas in faith, it's irrational, and, and you base your decisions on authority. And that, that prejudice is just keeping people from, from taking the faith serious, seriously. So where does this come from, this dichotomy, faith versus science, Science versus irrationality. Where did that come from? It's not from the Bible, I can tell you that. The Bible throughout presupposes that we're made in the image of a thinking God and we're meant to think. And the Bible is always encouraging his people to think all over the place. So Jesus says this in Matthew 22. Someone asked him, what's the greatest command? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, everyone say it, all your mind. Now, the mind is meant to think. That's what it does. The heart beats, the lungs expand and retract. The heart, the the brain, the mind thinks. It's a thinking machine. It never shuts up. If if you doubt that, try not to think. Get alone in the bathroom, shut off the lights, and try not to have a thought. Within three seconds, you'll be talking to yourself. Hey, this isn't that hard. Look at it. I can do this all day long. It's, it's, It's a yapping machine. That's what it does. But we're to worship God by our thinking, which presupposes that we're... Thinking. <laughs> so have a, take, take what your mind was meant to do, which is to think, and apply it to God. And that's a form of worship. When you're thinking deeply about God and about life and all the rest, you're worshiping God. You're, you're doing what the mind was meant to do. Then in Acts 1, we read this. Uh, it says that Jesus, after his suffering on the cross, uh, he presented himself alive to them, his disciples, with many convincing proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Clearly, Jesus didn't expect his disciples to believe that he had risen from the dead just because someone said so. Knowing that they have minds, he knew that they would need proof. They would need evidence. God expects us to base our beliefs on evidence and on reasoning. It's supposed to be smart. So he gives them the proof that they need that he, in fact, had risen from the dead. And then it, it, we read this in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
Peter says, always be ready to make your defense. Uses this uh, Greek word, apologia, apologia. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who demands from you and accounting for the hope that is within you. This word apologia, uh, it, it was used in a court of law for a defense. A defense lawyer was called an apologist. And you give reasons why you think this person is innocent. Paul, Peter says, be ready to do that with regard to the hope that you have within you. If someone says, why do you believe in Jesus? As opposed to Muhammad or Buddha or whoever, we're supposed to be able to give a reason for that. God expects us to think, to be thoughtful people, to base our beliefs on, on, uh, um, on the evidence in front of us. So the Bible is very rational. It assumes that faith is a rational thing. Where did this, where did this idea that faith and, and reason are opposed to one another, where did that come from? Well, here's a little video from uh, the Philosopher's Corner that can give us a little bit of insight into what's going on here. Watch this. Okay, so Pascal said that we should believe in God because belief is just practically useful. But Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher, went even further. He adopted the famous tenet of fideism, stating, I believe because it is absurd to believe. Fideism is the school of thought that says religious belief has to come from faith alone. It says stuff like arguments and evidence actually kill what's great about religion, which is wonder and mystery. Kierkegaard said that the fantastic thing about belief in God is that it's entirely irrational. You can't do it with your brain, you have to take what he called the leap to faith. And again, here I turn to Indiana Jones. Remember when Indy faces that last test of faith slash booby trap in the last crusade? He has to try to make an impossible jump across a scary pit to get to the Holy Grail. There is no way he can do it. It's suicide. But it turns out there's a bridge. He can't see it. But in order to find out that it's there, he has to take that step. He has to take a chance on something that defies all reason. That's what religion is all about, according to Kierkegaard. We jump and hope like hell that God catches us. And the only way to know is to jump. We have to surrender reason to get to truth. Have to surrender reason to get to truth. Is that true? Hmm. Okay, the uh, first thing I want to say about that is this. I am a fan of Kierkegaard. I went through a Kierkegaardian phase in college where I just read everything that Kierkegaard ever wrote, including his journals. And uh, I don't think that that was quite a fair presentation of what Kierkegaard actually believes, uh, nor is it a fair presentation of what Kierkegaard actually looks like, because Kierkegaard never wore purple hair so far as I know. Uh, it, that wasn't the fan at the time. But uh, so I remembered reading, uh, I read this book at the age of 19, and, and I, rem I, I remembered uh, a quote. I, I spent the morning looking for this. I finally found it at 7.46 this morning. But I knew there's a quote that I could use to refute this. And, and here's the thing. Kierkegaard, it's true that he emphasized that how irrational it is to believe in, in the one who is fully God and fully human. Because he thought that was a contradiction. It's an absurdity. So th that's true. You have to believe something that's absurd. But, and he did say that reason can only take you so far. And then you have to leap. But he never suggested that the leap itself was something that's irrational, that that is against reason. No, you can have reasons for it. Um, and so here, uh, here's a little quote I found. Um, this is on page 436 of his great book, Concluding Unscientific Postscripts. And uh, it, it, he says this, and the word dialectics here, it, it means uh, rational reasoning, okay? So he says, uh, for dialectics reasoning is in truth a benevolent helper which discovers and assists in finding where the absolute object of faith and worship is. Dialectics itself does not see the absolute, 
But it leads, as it were, the individual up to it and says, here it must be. Okay, so what he's getting at is this. Reasoning can point you in the direction of what you should believe. It can point you in the direction of truth. But it can't get you all the way there. You're going to have to take a leap. There's a point where you have to make a commitment. And so faith always goes beyond reason, but it doesn't have to go against it. And you might have believed some things that, that seem to defy reason, like, like, like Jesus being fully God and fully human, but you've got good reasons to affirm that. So Kierkegaard didn't hold that it's as irrational as, as, uh, uh, as this person makes it out to be. Though that is a common caricature of Kierkegaard, which is why I'm a little sensitive to the issue. I am always feeling the need to protect him because he's slandered so maliciously. But hey, look, at, there have been plenty of other people who have held to this theism, this idea that you can't give any rational grounds for, for, for what you believe. And that there's been a, a, a strand in the Christian tradition where you've pit faith against reason. Luther, for example, Luther said that, that the, the reason is, our, our reasoning is fallen, and so we can't trust it. And when we try to rely on reasoning, uh, it can be easily used by the devil to deceive us. So we have to just trust on authority, not on our own reason. Of course, the thing is, is that if you ask Luther, how do you come to that conclusion? He would say, well, through a reasoning process. So the, the, his position is kind of self-refuting if you think about it. All right. Then Tertullian, uh, he did say, I believe because it's absurd. I believe because it's absurd. Um, now, here's the thing. If, 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 if by that Tertullian meant this, I could, make, give, I could make some sense out of this. If he was saying that um, the revelation of God in Christ and the, the revelation, that the concept that God would reveal his omnipotence by getting crucified on a cross, that that is the power of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. That is so contrary to the kind of power that humans have always ascribed to God. To say that the cross is the power of God, God's self-sacrificial love, that's what his omnipotence looks like. That goes against everything humans have ever said about the gods. They've always ascribed to the gods this, this, this power to control, power to destroy, power to protect. Never the power of self-sacrificial love. And so this is so absurd to the natural mind, so contrary to, to the way the mind works, it's got to be divine revelation. That, I think, is a pretty good argument. This, this is too absurdly beautiful for a human being to come up with. If that's what Tertullian had meant, then I would have no trouble with it. But that doesn't seem to be what Tertullian or this whole strand meant. Um, they seem to really think that absurdity is a, is, is a virtue when it comes to believing something. I believe because it's so absurd. When I was in uh, grad school, there was a student. It, it was kind of a fad in the early 70s to talk this way. Everyone's in this existential absurdity thing. I never got it. I just never got it. So there's one, at one point in a class, I was talking about reasons for believing in Jesus, and this one student said, oh, that just detracts from faith. I believe because it's absurd. And so I said to them, well, that's absurd. By definition, that is an absurd view. And he said, thank you. <laughs> How do you respond to that? You know, I always thought that absurdity is one of the things you want to try to avoid when you're, when you're arriving at beliefs. If your belief is absurd, it's a negative thing, but they turn it into a positive thing. How do you even respond to that? And look, if, 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 if absurdity is sort of the precondition for believing something, or at least believing it passionately, why stop with the absurd belief that God became a human being? I can think of more absurd, thing to, more absurd things to believe. Like how about God became a tadpole? God so loved the world, he became a tadpole. Or uh, God so loved the world, he became a pair of socks. Okay, God, my, but this sock is God. God, the God sock. This is the sock of my salvation. The sock that the builders rejected. I go to the sock of my salvation. I'm standing on the solid sock. Hail the sock. Okay, that's absurd. 
If you want to believe absurd things, why stop with God became a human being? Let's go all the way with it. I could think of even more absurd things. God became an invisible mouse made of gruder cheese on the dark side of the moon, abducted by aliens on Tuesday. You know, who knows? So, so I, I, I don't know how to respond to that. Uh, it's absurd. But then there's another kind of, of, of uh, fideism. Um, Karl Barth, a theologian who I love a lot. Here's my, this is Church Dogmatics, Volume 1, Part 2. Uh, his church dogmatics take up about this much space. I mean, it's just incredible, the volume of this. But I was reading this uh, the, the other week, because there's a section on, on Scripture, and I'm writing a book on Scripture. And I, I, I like a lot of Karl Barth, but I don't like this, this aspect of Karl Barth. He was a fideist. And so he says this, Belief that the Bible is the Word of God presupposes that the Bible has already proved itself to be the Word of God. Um, but when and where there is this proof that it's the word of God, it must be a matter of the word of God itself. So the word proves itself. We have to recognize that faith is a miracle, and it's a miracle which we cannot explain apart from faith, or rather, uh, apart from the word of God in which faith believes. Therefore, the reality and the possibility of faith cannot be maintained or defended at all apart from faith and the word. Sort of self-explanatory, isn't it? So here's what he's saying. He's saying, we can't, you can't ever give any evidence or any reasoning as to why you believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Rather, the fact that you have faith that the Bible is the Word of God is the proof that the Bible is the Word of God. That's what he's saying. It's a miracle of faith. If it wasn't the Word of God, you wouldn't be believing it's the Word of God. The trouble with this argument is that it's viciously circular. You're, you're assuming the conclusion in order to defend the conclusion. Uh, the proof that the Bible is the word of God and that I'm believing the right thing is that I believe the Bible is the word of God and it's the right thing to believe. <laughs> Do you see how silly that argument is? It doesn't, look, when you're, if you're explaining why you believe something, you can't just repeat the fact that you believe it. <laughs> it doesn't explain anything. You can't just repeat your belief. You're supposed to give, like, why do you believe this is the Word of God as opposed to the Book of Mormon or, or the Quran or whatever? It, it should be a, you should have rational reasons why you choose this belief as opposed to another. Just testifying the fact that you believe it doesn't prove anything. And what would you say to a Muslim who uses that same argument or a Mormon who uses that same argument? And they do. They, they read this book and it will prove to you itself that, that, that it, you'll find yourself having faith in it. That it is the Word of God. Well, how could you refute it if that's the argument you use for defending the Bible? We're supposed to be able to give an apologia, a defense of why we have the hope that we have. Reciting the fact that we have that hope is not an apologia. That's just being repetitious. So our reasons have to be anchored in things outside of our faith itself. And here's the thing. If, if, if why you believe what you believe isn't a rational consideration, then why do you believe what you believe? Uh, if, if you haven't arrived at your beliefs through a process of thinking and critical examination, then it, it seems like you just inherited your beliefs. However they got in your head, they didn't get there through you thinking about them, which means you just sort of inherited them, which means what you believe is all based on chance, based on who you met, who told, who told you what to believe what. And had you been born in a different circumstance, someone else would have told you to believe something different, and you'd be believing that as well, because you don't think about your beliefs, you just inherit them. And so with what you end up believing, if you're, to the degree that you're, your beliefs are not arrived at by thinking about them. To that degree, your beliefs are just there by chance. And the thing is, our beliefs are supposed to be, we want to believe in beliefs that are true, right? We want our, our beliefs to match reality. But if your beliefs are just there by chance, 
then it's only going to be by chance that they match reality or don't match reality. In other words, you can't decide truth matters by chance. You can't roll the dice to determine whether God exists or not. Or at least that's a really bad way of going about trying to arrive at truth. Hey, listen, roll the dice. Okay, I guess I believe in God today. No, if, you, if truth is the goal, and it is the goal, right? We're trying to figure this out. If truth is the goal, the only way to get to truth is by thinking and by examining and exploring and considering options. It's the only way to do it. We've got to be willing to use our brain. There's no other way of, of, of arriving at truth. And that is the biblical position. So our, our situation is a little bit like this. Imagine that you're, you're, you've got 10 folks just going on a trip, going out in the forest, going on a, a walk. And they are walking up in the mountains and exploring things. And it gets to be late afternoon, and they're starting to get tired, and they're high elevation, so their air is getting a little thin. So they decide to take a nap. And there's an opening in the forest on the top of this mountain. So they fall fast asleep, all 10 of them. But then they wake up a little while later to the crackling of fire and the smell of smoke. Oh, no. Now, they know they got to get out of there because uh, there's a fire going on. They can't tell which direction it's coming from, but they can hear the crackling, and they can see the smoke, and they can smell it. So the question is, how do we get out of this, this opening in the forest? And the trouble is that they can't agree on what path got them there, which is the only path that they can be sure will get them out of there. They can't agree on it. And so... What do you do in a situation like this? Well, what you've got to do is take each, ask the question, why would anyone think that this is the right path? Or why would anyone think this is the right path? Or why would, you have to look at evidence and use your thinking. So someone might say, well, hey, look, over in this path. Um, and let's say there's a dozen paths that they could go on. You could say, look at, uh, can you see the, the, the grass is kind of pressed down like someone just walked on it recently. That's got to be us. And so, so I think this is the right path to go down. But someone else might say, well, you know, I think there were other people who were here before us. It could be their footprint as well. So maybe that's not evidence. Someone else might say, well, do you remember just before we got to this opening in the forest, we had to go up a little incline. I remember because I was out, out of breath. Well, this is the only path that has this incline. This has got to be the path that got us here. We should take this one. Someone else might say, well, no, no, actually, there's kind of an incline on this path as well. And if you look down there, you can see that there's a little, there's a little red cloth on this tree and that's because I caught my, my, my red sweater on it. When we were coming here yesterday, that's got to be the path. Someone else might say, no, no, I saw you out. Last night you were sleepwalking and you were down on that trail. I was worried that you're going like, to rip your sweater because you're sleepwalking. So, so you, you're having a rational discussion here, right? Maybe someone that goes down a path of ways and says, hey, you guys, it's down here because I found the candy wrapper that I had left. I, I remember throwing it away. I felt kind of guilty, but not guilty enough to pick it up. But this is the candy wrapper. And besides, there's a sign that says, in case of fire, take this, take this pathway. And I forgot that I'd seen that coming up here. And that looks like a really solid argument, right? Okay, this is the deal breaker. That must be the right one. Until you consider the fact that this, is, that this is Tommy talking here. And Tommy is delusional when he does take his meds. And he hasn't taken his meds for a week. So he could be making this whole thing up. For all you know, he started the fire. And, and he, he's suicidal. But see, you're thinking, you're evaluating things. It's the only way, it's the only way to, to, to uh, go about deciding which path you think. Each of these paths could be the path to salvation or could be the path to getting burned alive. They might just loop around and come back. So you have to look at what, what was the, you may wish that the evidence was, 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 was more unambiguous. It was clear, more definitive. But see, you got to make a decision based on the evidence that's in front of you, not based on the evidence that you wish you had in front of you. And, and, and so where are you going to leap? Reason can take you so far, but at some point you got to commit. The, the, the forest is on fire, so you don't have forever and that's just is reflecting the fact that we're going to die. So we, we want to make a choice here, but, but we've got a finite amount of time to do it in. 
Um, and, and notice this. You have to take a leap of faith. You're going to have to act as though something was true that you haven't yet proven. You're going to act like one of these paths are, is true. And that's true even if you decide that you don't want to act at all. There might be somebody there who says, you know, I'm really averse to putting my faith in anything where there's not sufficient evidence, and I don't think we have evidence to decide which of these paths is the right way to go out, so I'm going to remain agnostic on the matter, and I'm just going to stay put. Well, that might be a smart thing to do, but it might be a terribly dumb thing to do. Uh, do you have evidence that staying put is safer than going down any one of these paths? <laughs> you see, to, to make no decision is to make a decision. You're, 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 you're exercising faith that this is the safe place to stand, but you don't know that that's the case. That's the situation I think that we find ourselves in, folks. Uh, we are, we, we're thrown in the middle of this forest. We exist. We didn't, no one asked our permission if we could exist or not. They just decided to create us, and here we are. It's a very weird thing when you think about it. I think, I find it, I'm getting freaked out by existence all the time. This is real. This is really real. This is going on. This isn't a pro forma thing. This is real. I exist. I'm up here talking to you. And this is what Heidegger called our thrownness. We're thrown into existence. We just find ourselves here. Like, what on earth is going on? We exist. Who would have thought? Why is there something rather than nothing? Certainly, why is there me instead of nothing? Well, here I am. And now I want to figure out what's going on here. And there's a lot of things I could believe. Beliefs about the world, beliefs about God, beliefs about Jesus. What am I going to believe about this thing? What am I supposed to do? Well, the only option, if I'm interested in finding out the truth, and I am interested in finding out the truth, because I don't know how much is at stake in this. In the middle of the forest, you know, you, you know, you know, your life might be at stake, so you want to get it as accurate as possible. The only way forward is to ask questions like, why would you believe this as opposed to that? And why would someone believe that as opposed to this? And we can wish that we had clearer evidence that was more unambiguous. We can spend our time raising all sorts of questions about stuff. But at some point, you've got to act. And to not act is to act. If a person says, well, you know, I, I'm going to remain agnostic. Um, you're having faith there. Faith that the world is the kind of place where it's appropriate to suspend judgment indefinitely. You're having faith that the world's the kind of place where you have a right to demand a higher level of evidence than what you've got. But you don't know that it's appropriate. That's an act of faith. You're stepping out here. You might be wrong about that. In fact, Jesus had some teachings about those who uh, suspend judgments or, or, or decisions indefinitely, and they don't act on the basis of the evidence that's in front of them. Keep on demanding more. So it's an act of faith. There's no non-faith way of responding to the force that we find ourselves in. Which leads me to this all-important point, and that's this. Faith isn't something that religious people have. That, our, our, our cultural talk, talks like that. Are you a person of faith? But see, everybody is a person of faith. At least if you're rational, you're a person of faith. Because everybody has to act on the assumption of certain things being true that they cannot prove. Certainty is hard to come by, folks. Uh, mathematics, maybe, but even there, they have to operate on assumptions that they can't prove. Logic, uh, death, and taxes, that's pretty much it. You can be certain of those things. Everything else, you have to act without, 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 um, uh, without proof that this is the, the right way to go. So, for example, I want to congratulate all of you on exercising such great faith to come out here this morning and be part of the service. That, took a, that was an act of faith. Because you know what? First of all, it's cold. But we're Minnesotans, ah, we, we eat cold for breakfast. But you, you, you don't know, you, you don't know, you, you couldn't have known that you're going to get here safe. For, you, you can't prove that you weren't going to have a fatal car accident should you try to come to church today. And you can't prove that the minute you step out that door, that there's going to be some part of a long-forgotten satellite that's going to break off and fall down through the sky and happen to land right on your head the second you step out of that door. It could happen. 
But see, you had faith that it wouldn't happen. You assume that there's no satellite that's going to fall on your head and there's no fatal crash that's going to get here. And that's a pretty rational assumption because those things are pretty rare. And the reward of coming to church and being part of the service and hearing this enlightened sermon makes it more than worth it, I'm sure. And so, so you, have, you acted out of faith. But you, you, you didn't know. In fact, we, we don't realize how much faith we exercise every day until you come up and meet a person who's got a phobia. Uh, then you'll realize just how much faith you have. There are folks who have got agoraphobia. They're afraid of leaving the house. Because when they think about leaving the house, they, they're having faith that that satellite part will land on their head or that they will get in a fatal car crash or something terrible will happen. So they stay indoors. But you had the faith to go out and, and travel here. It's that way with everything. Two days ago, I was, I was getting, coming out of CVS and there's a lady right in front of me and all of a sudden she stops dead in her track turns around, has a really scared look on her face, and goes the other direction. Goes out the back door. I look up and I see why she did that, and that's just this huge, huge dog at the door, like a, a pit bull. I'm not sure if it was a pit bull, but it had like a, a little square head. Dog with a square head, huge square head. It, it looked like, like a giant pit bull. Now this lady clearly has issues, uh, she maybe has cynophobia, uh, which is the fear of dogs. Uh, I used to have a little fear of bigger dogs, but I've overcome it. And I look at this dog, and it looks kind of friendly. You know, his tail's wagging when it sees me. And I figure if it was a biter, the owner wouldn't have put it right by the front door. In fact, it's kind of rude to put a big dog like that by the front door anyways, because it's going to freak some people out like it just did that lady. But I look at this dog, and it looks kind of cute. And the owner surely wouldn't have put a dog that's a biter by the front door where he's going to get sued. And so I cautiously open the door and let the dog smell my hand and then start to pet the door and we have a little love session. That thing turned out to be so cute. It was so cute. But see, I can't prove that that dog wasn't going to bite me and she can't prove that the dog was going to bite her, but we act on the assumption that what we believe is going to be true. Uh, We have different kinds of faith. All of our actions are like this. You get on a plane, you don't know that that plane is inspected well. You don't know that the drivers aren't drunk and you don't know that there's not a bomb on board. Or you, these days, you don't know if there's going to be an air traffic controller who's going to get you down safe. Oh, they're so fatigued. Who knows what? But you know the stats, and so it's rational to get on a plane, but it takes faith. You're getting on the plane goes beyond the evidence, but it, shouldn't, it doesn't really go against it. But you don't know. You have to act in the face of uncertainty. Uh, you're letting your daughter go out with that guy. You haven't done every possible background check on him. Yeah, he seems like a nice guy. comes from a nice family, but you don't know that he's not a psychopathic, crazy, lunatic maniac. You don't know that for sure, but you can't keep your daughter in the house all the time. We, everything we do is on faith. You, you use your iPhone. Do you, is, it, is it proven that it can't give you brain cancer? Verdict is still out on that one. Uh, we drink tap water for crying out loud. Think about where that water's been. But we have faith. We have faith, tremendous faith. That there's, that there's machines that are able to suck the excrement and refuse out of water to make it drinkable the next day. Even though I'm betting 99% of us don't know a thing about that sanitation process. We just trust it. We're drinking someone else's toilet water because we trust that someone told us that it's clean. That's faith. That's faith. And some people don't have that faith. So they... If you sleep in a hotel, you've got tremendous faith. Because you're, you're, you're going to act as though there aren't hidden cameras there. I have that faith, but my wife does not. It's, it's, and you're eating restaurants and you're letting strangers prepare your food, but you don't know what they're doing back there in that kitchen. They could be really nasty people doing nasty things to that food that you're about to eat. 
But see, if you thought about that too much, you wouldn't eat it. And so by faith, you just accept it so you can enjoy your dinner. Everything is, is, is like that. You go to sporting events, but guess where terrorists are going to blow up next? Yes, sporting events and concerts. But we go. We should go. Because it's a reasonable thing to do, but you're going, you're going beyond the evidence. Everybody has faith. There's no other way to be. We act on the assumption that certain things are true that we can't prove. But it's rational to do that. Even in science, you guys, there's faith all over the place in science. This dichotomy that, that faith is only a religious thing, it's just, it's, and science has none of that, it's just poppycock. Um, in, in science, you have to work on some foundational assumptions that you can't prove. Godel even showed this with math. That it has to, you have to make certain assumptions, faith assumptions, just to get the thing going. And on top of that, scientists have to have a lot of faith. Their career is based on faith. Uh, they have a hunch that something's true, and so they pour their life into, into researching it. And, 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 you know, uh, it can be months, can be years, can be an entire career trying to prove something because you have a hunch, you have faith that this is the case. And you might be right, and your research will pay off, but you might be wrong. A bunch of people spent their whole career in the 19th century trying to prove that ether existed, this fine substance, because they, they assumed that light, having wave-like uh, uh, characteristics, that, that it has to travel through a medium, and so there must be this ether. They spent their entire career trying to prove it. In the 1880s, they proved that, in fact, ether doesn't exist. Um, but that, that's, that, that was faith that, that they would pour in. There's a guy right now who's trying to prove that there's a 10th planet in our solar system uh, because the uh, Jupiter, Nupiter, Jupiter, Nupiter, Jupiter, Jupiter, <laughs> Jupiter and Neptune... Uh, their orbits are, get, get kind of wobbly at certain points. And so he's, he's supposedly there must be a gravitational pull that's disrupting their, their ordinary orbit. So they're, they're looking for this. They may find it, they may not, but that's faith. Uh, everyone operates with faith. So if, if every rational person has to go beyond the evidence but not against it, then what we're doing in believing in Jesus is no different than what everyone does for everything else. So where do we ever get this assumption that faith and reason are at war with each other? It's just, it's, just, it's just crazy. I'll end with just giving you the short, short, short version of this. It goes back, well, the shortest version, it goes back to Galileo. As many of you know, Galileo was an advocate of the heliocentric uh, view of the solar system, uh, first advocated by Copernicus. And, and it, 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 you can show that uh, it solves all these different kind of problems if you put the, earth, the, the sun as the center rather than the earth. Well, the church didn't like that at all. Because the church had always taught that the earth is the center of everything. And the Bible says that Joshua made the sun stand still. Joshua 10. Made the sun stand still for three hours. Which means the sun must have been moving. And so God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. And so they now use the authority of the church and the authority of the Bible to try to squash out a scientific view that was, a, that was arrived at through reasoning and evidence. And this is the first time in history where now the church authority and the Bible authority is pitted against reason and evidence. And unfortunately, you know, Galileo offered a solution to this. And it was, it was just brilliant. He said this. Because you know, the Bible is the word of God and we have to interpret it seriously. But that, that's the story of God. But there's also a story of nature. And we're just now learning how to interpret the story of nature. It's got things to tell us about itself and about, about God. And, and we're supposed to have loving dominion. So finding out about how the world actually works it, it will help us do that. So this is a God, this is, these are both godly things. And, and, and they both reveal different things. And so we should interpret them in conjunction with one another. He said, and he got this from St. Thomas Aquinas, he said, all truth is God's truth. And so 
since God is self-consistent, the truth of the Bible will correspond to the truth of nature and vice versa if we're understanding it correctly. And so when we come into a conflict, let's just assume that there's a deeper truth that will resolve this conflict. And, and, and let's have the theologians be as open-minded and as creative as they explore the, the story of God to find a solution as the scientists are when they explore the story of nature. And we'll, let's just trust that we'll be able to find uh, ways of reconciling this. And so he, uh, on this sun standing still thing, he said this. Well, look, at the Bible, of course, is written from a, a human perspective. Um, th- they didn't know about science back then. And so the only way they have for talking about things is the way things appear. And from the ground, it appears that the sun moves. So, of course, they're going to talk. We still talk that way. Hey, what time is the sun going to rise? Well, technically, it's not rising at all. It's staying put. It's the earth that's turning. <laughs> Don't be a pedantic butthead. Uh, so it, it's a common language. And, uh, and he said, let's, let's handle all conflicts that way. There's ways of interpreting it that, that, that reconcile them. Unfortunately, the church didn't buy it stuck to its guns, and tried to squash a scientific view on the basis of, uh, basis of its authority. Well, science ended up winning. Within one generation, everybody was accepting the, the heliocentric view of the solar system. And so the church lost tremendous credibility. And the Bible lost tremendous credibility. And the same thing happened when the certain Christians declared war on evolution, and then declared war on Big Bang Theory, and so on and so on and so on. And the, the, the ones who pay for it are the ones who could have been believers had they had a way of, of, of understanding that there's not a conflict between science and faith. Uh, this whole series is really just a way of saying, let's put an end to that. Amen? Let's put an end to this divide. And we want to be showing how these two things, if you just dig down, not that we'll reconcile everything, there's going to be points of tension, but that the, the, to show the fundamental compatibility between faith and reason, faith and science. So I'm going to end with this. Question, um, do you know why you believe what you believe? If someone were to ask you, uh, you have five minutes at an airport, and they say, so you're a Christian, huh? Why do you, why? Why do you believe in Jesus as opposed to Muhammad or Buddha or whatever? Would you have an apologia to give them? I'll just say this. Saying that this is how you were raised is not an apologia. That's fideism. Well, this is what I was taught. And so I'm just going to hope that I got the right one. Uh, no, you, you can't claim to have any belief in truth if you're going to default to that. I encourage you to know why you believe what you believe. And, and to, in fact, I want to go further. Give you a little assignment here. And we've got books out there in the gathering area that help with this. If, if you need to do some research and background stuff, letters from a skeptic and other books can help you with this. But to have a five-minute speech... Ready. Because we're ambassadors of the kingdom, right? We're missionaries. We're evangelists. And we're supposed to be being able to give a reason for the hope that's within us, to spread the word, to win others in, into Christ. Um, and so think about that five-minute speech. Speech. In fact, th- think about this. You have that invitation card in the bulletin, right? If you have a friend who is not a Christian, I want to encourage you to do this. Maybe spend a week or two getting ready for it, but when you're ready, go to that person. And say, look, my pastor gave us an assignment. Uh, and the assignment is that uh, I, I'm supposed to give a five-minute speech to you about why I'm a Christian and invite you to poke holes in it. I, I want you to show me what's off with it or what's not convincing. And do it sincerely. You want to find out where there's holes in this. You're going to be perfecting your elevator speech. All right? 
So it gives you an excuse to talk to the person about Jesus, uh, and you can blame it all on me. My pastor, he's just weirdo. You know, he wants us to talk to But I, I feel I should do it. So, so is it okay if I just give you this little speech here, and then, then you, you push back on it and see where it goes. And if you don't have a friend who's not a Christian, try to find one. And uh, uh, go out to a person on the street. Tell them, my pastor says I'm supposed to give this speech to somebody. Do you mind listening to it? Maybe if you pay him $5, I'll listen to it. Anyways. Okay, so that, that, that's the first assignment. Um, and then throughout this, this series, we'll be uh, just taking on various aspects of science and showing how they are not, in fact, incompatible with the faith that we have in, in Christ. Amen?